Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast looking at horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek inside The Long Box of Darkness. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome back to the Long Box of Darkness. I know it's been a while, and that's totally my fault. I did not mean to break up with you. Our long love affair is still standing strong. But let's just say I was a victim of circumstance, an abductee of events beyond my control, if you want to put it like that. First off, I took a long vacation. I wasn't at home, wasn't near my precious recording equipment, so even though I read a lot of horror comics and never stopped thinking about you listeners, I wasn't able to really record or even write anything down. So I'm back now though and ready to get into it and as a type of apology to all of you, I'm going to do one show a week from now on. It will either be a full-length show or it will be a prelude episode, but you will definitely be getting a show a week from me from now on. And as a thank you to those listeners sticking around, I've decided to try to get Erin back. That's right, Erin from our Erin segment. She's been conspicuously absent from the last couple of shows, and that's just because she's also been very busy. But she's recently had more free time on her hands, so she'll be back come episode 15. But this being episode 14, uh, she won't be available right at this point in time. She's still traveling and doing lots of other stuff. Stuff way more fun than sitting in front of a desk and recording, I'm pretty sure. But I'd like to take this moment to also announce the second reason why I was a little bit absent And that is because I started another podcast with a good friend of mine, Grant, an old Twitter buddy, whom I've known for a while now. We've decided to start another podcast focusing on the Bronze Age weirdness of Marvel Comics. And that podcast is called Into the Weird. We've got four episodes out. We've also guested on an episode of Rob Kelly's Treasury Cast. So if you're so inclined check out the Into the Weird podcast, which you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Every place, basically, where the Long Box of Darkness is available. You'll be able to listen to Into the Weird, and I hope you like it. Even though it's not strictly horror, it does deal with the strangeness of Marvel during the 70s and early 80s. And we do, in fact, discuss a lot of horror tales, Things like Marvel's magazines, The Savage Tales, um, Monsters Unleashed, Dracula Lives, Tales of the Zombie. We discuss some comic books too, Tomb of Dracula. We'll do a bit of um, Morbius the Living Vampire, who was the subject of our most recent show. We're doing a lot of um, Howard the Duck. (laughs) Crazy stuff, I know. But it's a lot of fun, and I hope some of you listeners might deem it worthy of your time and listen to the Into the Weird podcast. But now let's get back to our Long Box of Darkness, episode 14. I'm sitting here in Taipei City. It's raining outside. Tropical rainstorms that we've had recently has caused lots of flooding across Asia. So my heart goes out to the people in Japan, especially especially Osaka who was recently almost devastated by a typhoon. 
um, a lot of flooding in the Taiwan itself and in the Philippines and in parts of China. So I hope those people are, are okay. And also to my listeners in Europe and the States, wherever you might be, if the weather goes crazy on you, just remember that it's nothing compared to the apocalyptic events that we're going to discuss in today's comic books that I've prepped for you. Alright, so today we're talking about a comic book near and dear to my heart. I love it so much. It's a bit lighter fare if you compare it to what I discussed on the last show, which was Alan Moore's Neonomicon. This time around, we're doing something more fun. It can't rightfully be considered full-on horror. I might call it a black comedy or black horror comedy. It's a book by Mike Mignola, and it's called The Amazing Screw-On-Head. Let me screw on head. There are two histories, one that's told and one that isn't. I, Abraham Lincoln, do order that America's strangest, most secret histories will only be recorded in one book. These are the adventures of the amazing screw on head. The Amazing Screw-On Head was first published as a one-shot in 2002, and it ended up winning the 2003 Eisner Award for Best Humor Publication. And uh, it's got strong horror elements, even though it was touted as merely a black comedy, as I mentioned before. And it seems that Mignola conceived the idea after thinking about toys with detachable heads. And so it might be that he wanted to start up a a bit of a toy line, who knows, with a character that t- takes off um, that kids would like. You could just d- take this little robot, you could detach his head, put him on different kinds of bodies. Great idea. But obviously nothing came of that. Still, it's a great comic book that we got from Mignola's fertile imagination once again. And after a while, it seemed the Sci-Fi Channel became interested in it, and they picked it up um, and ordered a pilot in 2006. But after the pilot, it seemed that they decided against uh, continuing with the series, so it was not picked up. And the pilot, in fact, is ridiculously funny as well. It's slightly different from the comic book. We'll discuss that also later in the show. But it featured the voice talents of Paul Giamatti and uh, David Hyde Pierce from Frasier, if you remember him as Dr. Niles Crane, and Patton Oswalt. So, you know, a star voice cast made it a great little animated uh, pilot episode. But the comic book itself was published as a hardcover collection in 2009, and then it contained five extra stories by Mignola. So it makes it um, a bit more than 130-plus pages. And it's in one of the Dark Horse hardcovers, very sturdy, um, very well-bound. It's not glued to the spine. It's sewn in, so it's a sewn binding, so it's very durable and looks good next to your Hellboys and your Baltimores and your BPRD trades, I think at least. (laughs) So the first story in the book tells of the amazing Screw-On Head, the titular character of this series, and his battle against his arch-foe Emperor Zombie for the fate of the world. Just to give you a bit more detail about what Screw-On-Head looks like. He's basically this robotic-looking man who's got this the image of a club from a, a suit of cards on his chest. Um, and in the center of that club, we find a circle with a number on, and that number normally denotes the body that he's using at any given time, because as I mentioned earlier, when Mignola conceived of the idea, he um, thought about someone who can have this interchangeable head, who has multiple robotic bodies, and he could um, unscrew his own head, bounce over to a new body, and screw himself into this new um, form, which he can then use for different purposes, combat, espionage, um, whatever. So the Screw-On-Head's a fascinating character. He's kind of like a type of 
um, all-purpose uh, inspector Gadget, <laughs> really. Except that he's much more competent than Gadget. And he seems to have been around for a couple of centuries. He's got this uh, cave or hideout where he has lots of trophies and from past adventures, forbidden texts, ancient uh, regalia, and then he's got these manservants who work for him, Mr. Groin being one of them, who's uh, this Beethoven-looking guy, and he's also got his pet, Mr. Dog, who's um, a zombie-like dog. His uh, body has been replaced with these cryogenic fluids, which presumably keep him alive or keep him from decaying. But he's highly intelligent. He can track anyone anywhere on the planet uh, very accurately by giving you the exact coordinates. And um, he's also missing a leg. <laughs> Poor Mr. Dog. He's and they mentioned that he's been around um, from almost the beginning. So he's probably also a couple of centuries old. Uh, the same as his owner. So I, I've been racking my brains trying to think what this symbol on Scruon's chest might mean. I mean, obviously, it is. it looks like a club from a suit of cars, but it, uh, a trefoil. But it could also be something else. I know a club in, in the tarot, it represents... Um, winter or darkness um, or, or fire even energy, will so all of those things um, you find in the character of Screw On Head it could be that but it could also be something completely different I'd appreciate it if any listeners in the know might leave me some feedback to tell me what I'm missing here but um, that's, that's a bit about Screw On Head he's Enemy Emperor Zombie is basically an intelligent zombie who used to um, be human and then uh, dabbled in the occult and in forbidden knowledge and dark magic and turned himself into this living zombie who's now uh, commanding undead forces and who seeks for a way to end or either control the world um, whatever whim takes him. Now, Emperor Zombie and Screw-On Head make up the main characters of the first part of the book, which is just titled The Amazing Screw-On Head. While the second part of the book is all about the five extra tales, each of which are very short, but very interesting and features great art again by Mignola. I don't think I've ever seen bad art from him. Just weird art, but uh, every single piece he's done I can find something to love. And uh, these five extra tales are as follows. The first one is Abu Gung and the Beanstalk, and then the Magician and the Snake, and we've got the Witch and her Soul, and then the Prisoner of Mars, and lastly, in the Chapel of Curious Objects. And the book ends with an extraordinary sketchbook section by Mr. Mignola, where you see his process in developing these characters from the very first rough sketch to the finished product. It's a fascinating exercise in creation. So this book definitely comes fully loaded. I hardly recommend it. It's one of my prized possessions on my Mignola shelf. I love it to bits. So let's get into this thing. First off, we'll start with a synopsis for the main story. Alright, here goes. Upon receiving the news that there has been a break-in at the Museum of Dangerous Books and Paper, President Abraham Lincoln contacts his best agent, the amazing screw-on head, to solve the mystery. It appears that the only thing missing from the museum is the Kalakistan fragment, a supposedly untranslatable ancient manuscript detailing the life of Gung the Magnificent, who nearly conquered the world 12,000 years ago with the power of a fabulous melon-sized jewel. Screw-on Head theorizes that it must be his old enemy, Emperor Zombie, who, as a master of ancient languages, has possibly managed to translate the untranslatable, and who is at this very moment on the trail of the all-powerful Jewel of Gung, which might be located in the Aswam River Valley in Spain, the so-called worst place on Earth. 
Screw on Head, along with his faithful manservant, Mr. Groin, and his pet dog, Mr. Dog, blast themselves into orbit in a Jules Verne-type rocket in order to reach the valley in time to stop Emperor Zombie from claiming the jewel. Meanwhile, having disembarked from his skull balloon dirigible, Zombie and his cohorts, the Vampire Maid and the amoral Dr. Snap, have managed to locate the Temple of Gung. Seizing a treasure chest from the decaying, undead hands of Gung the Magnificent himself, they are disappointed to find that the omnipotent jewel within is merely an ancient and smelly turnip. Dr. Snap's instruments, however, tell him that there is a small parallel universe inside the odorous vegetable, and upon establishing contact manages to free the evil that lurks within. A giant amphibian monitor lizard looking Komodo dragonish beast of the apocalypse. Screw on Head arrives just in time to blow the monster to bloody bits with his patented explosive projectile arm. Emperor Zombie almost escapes but is pursued by Head who, now bodiless, hitches a ride on the skull balloon ship and chews through the wiring, causing another massive explosion and seemingly destroying Emperor Zombie for good. Alright, that's the synopsis. So basically, this is an amazing story full of great moments, even though it's very short. You've got awesome art by Mignola, his signature style with lots of blacks. There's the scene where Emperor Zombie and the Vampire Maid and Dr. Snap walk through the Temple of Gung in the Aswam River Valley and you see these gigantic, these monolithic statues peering down at them with these skull faces. And there's um, also uh, a scene in Screw on Head's laboratory or his uh, hideout, his headquarters, where you see all these bodies, these extra bodies of his dangling from the ceiling. And then he picks Lucky 13, Mr. Groin. <laughs> That's the body we'll need for this mission. And um, great art in every single one of these panels. You've also got excellent dialogue. For instance, um, there's a part where Mr. Groin, um, while he's discussing Emperor Zombie with Screw on Head, they talk about his, um, uh, when Emperor Zombie was still human, he was H.G. Manifold, a master of ancient languages. And then Mr. Groin goes on to say, it's as you've always said, Mr. Head, all really intelligent people should be cremated. And then <laughs> Screw on Head says, for national security reasons, Mr. Groin, they have to be cremated. You're right. <laughs> and there's also um, the part where they where Emperor Zombie happens upon Gung and seizes the treasure chest from him and then discovers that this fabulous melon-sized jewel, which he calls Bangang Agroesh, the left eye of Nog, the jewel worshipped by the wizards of Mu and the black priests of Atlantis, finally passed down to Gung the Magnificent, who was chosen by the gods to conquer the world, is merely a smelly old dirty piece of crap turnip. <laughs> so after all that build-up, He's severely disappointed in what he finds. And then you've got this excellent bit of dialogue between Emperor Zombie and the Vampire Maid, who seems to be having some kind of a relationship. You're never quite sure, but after uh, Screw-On-Head has thwarted Emperor Zombie's plans, Zombie's bent on revenge. He's wrathful. He wants to destroy the world, so in his floating skull balloon ship, he shows the Vampire Maid these three buttons with an A, a B, and a C on them. And he says, The world must pay. How shall we end it? With poison frogs? Plague rats? Or giant fire-breathing robots? Obviously, pointing to the buttons, uh, stating which one they should pick, which kind of apocalypse they should unleash. And then the vampire maid says, Why not all three? And then zombie looks at her and says, Marry me. <laughs> Oh, it's great. And then you've got the part where uh, Screw-On-Head's uh, bodiless head bashes through the floor of the skull balloon ship and he starts chewing on the wiring. And there's this great panel where he's got his mouth on some of the wiring and he's snarling and growling and ripping at this wiring, just this little head with a screw at the bottom of its neck saying, ar, 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 as it chews through this wire, these wires. So, wow, what a comic. And then the best scene is probably at the end where um, Screw-On-Head is lauded for his performance by Abraham Lincoln and lots of 
uh, 19th century looking characters who cheer him on. And then you've got these people in the gentleman's club discussing screw on heads exploits and uh, drinking a toast to him. And they're saying, at this juncture, we had hoped to present the secret origin of screw on head. But as it turns out, the darn thing's a secret. So instead, we present you with these three portraits of three old horrible women and a monkey. Cheers. <laughs> and then you've got four pages of portraits drawn by Mignola of these 19th century old grannies, um, which kind of looks like mug shots too, because on the first grandma, you've got this sign saying werewolf. <laughs> and on the second grandma, who's posing in this very Victorian era, Elizabeth, uh, Victoria-like pose, uh, you've got a sign slapped on her saying cannibal. And the third grandma, criminal lunatic. She's wearing this cute little bonnet. It looks like she could be my grandma for heaven's sake. And then the final picture in this comic is a picture of a monkey with a floating crown above his head and flies zooming around his face. The end. <laughs> so a suitably ridiculous comic, but brilliant all the same. So it's got uh, quite a few horror tropes. It's got zombies. I mean, Emperor Zombie himself, he looks like he's, he's this walking skeleton with flies zipping through his eye sockets all the time. Um, basically a walking zombie that has lost all the flesh on his bones because he's probably at this point in time hundreds of years old since it's hinted that Scrawn Head has been battling him for centuries. And um, he's dressed in this very fancy French Revolution era garb. And um, then you've got you know, him being able to seemingly raise zombies because in the desert, when Screw-On-Head and uh, Mr. Groin arrive with Mr. Dog in this uh, Jules Verne rocket, they're shot down by these uh, zombie soldiers who seem to be Civil War era zombies that have been, or, or probably in some kind of a Spanish war, I should say, because, you know, this is the, ni the 19th century and these are... Well, they were in Spain at the time, and these um, uh, so zombie soldiers garbed in this old attire are shooting them down with these artillery shells and also blasting at Mr. Groin and uh, screw on head with, with these rapid-fire machine guns. Um, so, I mean, Emperor Zombie himself, he's a, he's a great character. He's very funny. He completely doesn't know what, what he gets himself into when he releases that demon of the apocalypse from the turnip, but he rolls with it. <laughs> he even says when Screw-On-Head arrives, he says, I give up, take me to jail. <laughs> I've had enough of this. So he's a great character. And then you've got uh, Screw-On-Head himself, who seems to be all duty-bound. He's very loyal. He's a patriot, follows the orders of... Uh, Abraham Lincoln to the letter, but he's also very resourceful. He's been around for a long time battling these supernatural foes of America. And then you've got the vampire maid who's sort of a cipher. She doesn't really do much in this story. She's a lot more fleshed out in the animated pilot, which we'll talk about just now. Um, and But what I find funny about her is every time some danger gets introduced into the story, she ups and turns herself into a bat and flies away with this little poof sound effect every single time she ups and turns tail. So, great comic book. I would give it quite a good rating. And speaking of ratings, today we're using our apocalyptic turnip rating system. And I would have to give this comic book, The Amazing Scrawn Hit, the main story, four out of five apocalyptic turnips. Um, just talk about the art alone, the story notwithstanding, the art alone garners it that a very high rating. So well done, Mike Mignola, on this story. All right, let's talk a bit about the animated pilot. Now, as I mentioned before, the voice cast is absolutely brilliant. You've got Paul Giamatti as a screw on head, and you've got David Hyde Pierce as Emperor Zombie and Patton Oswald as Mr. Groin. Now, there's quite a few differences between the pilot and the amazing screw-on head 
comic book. Uh, first off, the characters are more fully formed in the pilot, and I should mention um, it was directed by Chris Pronowski and written by Brian Fuller in 2006 for the Sci-Fi Channel. And um, uh, in this pilot uh, story, Emperor Zombie uh, used to be one of Screw-On Head's manservants. In fact, the very first manservant, Professor H.G. Manifold. But he was not the master of ancient languages like he is in the comic book. Um, but he had turned to evil after being warned by Screw-On Head not to, in fact, be seduced by the lure of dark secrets and dark magic. And you've got this great line in the animated pilot when uh, Screw-On Head berates Zombie for, for you know going to the dark side. And Emperor Zombie says, he accuses Screw-On Head, and he says it's Screw-On Head's fault that he turned evil because, in Zombie's words, you went on and on about how sweet the candy was, then told me not to put it in my mouth, and got mad at me when I did. And then Screw-On Head says, if by candy you mean ancient forbidden evil, then yes, I told you not to put it in your mouth. And then a vampire maid who's called Patience um, in this uh, pilot, she says, I think your forbidden evil is fresh as a daisy. And Emperor Zombie says, thank you, darling. <laughs> so great bit of dialogue there uh, from both sides. Open, open, open. I can't bear to wait a moment longer. I'm about to make contact. Stop! Right there. Hold on, I was just saying how nice it'd be if Patience were here to share this moment, and there she is. You granted my wish. Hello, darling. Hello, my love. Unless your wish is to see her die, I suggest you put down that turnip. In this my greatest hour, I do have another wish, but it's not that. It's to have a happy reconciliation with the head that gave me purpose. After all, I wouldn't be the zombie I am today if it weren't for you. Your purpose is world domination. And don't put your damage on me, pal. I get enough of that from this one. I'm merely expressing gratitude. Perhaps you might express an apology. Oh, no, he didn't. Apologize to you? Pardon me if I say poppycock. Then say it. Poppycock. And then, of course, you have... Um, this patience, the vampire maid herself, she doesn't have a name in the comic book, but here she turns out to be one of Scrawn Head's uh, old loves. In fact, his fiance from a uh, hundred or so years ago. Um, and in Scrawn Head's words, she made him feel uh, full-bodied, <laughs> not just a head. And then she unfortunately was kidnapped by Emperor Zombie and turned into a vampire. Um, because he's motivated by this petty revenge fetish against any and all whom Screw-On Head loves, especially against Screw-On Head's subsequent manservants, whom Emperor Zombie hates, because he was the first. He doesn't want any other man manservants to um, heed Screw-On Head's uh, you know, advice. He kills them all in gruesome ways. And Mr. Groin, the current manservant, is aghast when he discovers this about Emperor Zombie, that he's got this petty revenge fetish against all of Head's manservants. And then you've got the three horrible old women and the monkey from the portraits in the comic book. The cannibal, the criminal lunatic, the, the werewolf, and the, the monkey with the crown. They're actually used in the animated pilot as enforcers of Emperor Zombie. They work for him. They, they steal the Kalakistan fragment from the Museum of Dangerous Books and Paper in the very beginning. But you've only got two of the old women in the story, not the third. The criminal lunatic is nowhere to be found. You've got the werewolf, and then you've got the cannibal. And then basically they steal the fragment and they kidnap a Professor Fruin, who in this story is a master of ancient languages, whereas in the comic book Emperor Zombie himself was the master of ancient languages. That's why he could translate the... Kalakistan fragment to find out where the jewel of Gung was located. But here, in order to gain the knowledge that Professor Fruin has in the animated pilot, Emperor Zombie actually puts Professor Fruin in this giant bong and smokes him. <laughs> and once he's turned Professor Fruin into smoke and inhaled him, he gains all of Fruin's knowledge of ancient languages and translates the Galakistan fragment and then goes to the Aswan Valley to claim the 
jewel of gung. And it also seems that screw on head, he doesn't really trust any of his manservants ever since Emperor Zombie betrayed him all those uh, centuries ago. But Mr. Groin, this current manservant, he proves very resourceful and he sort of worms his way into screw on head's heart. And then we also have the bodies that screw on head employ in the animated pilot. They're much more diverse, much different than the ones he used in the comic book. For instance, you have one body here resembling a spider and one suited for combat against kaiju-sized foes. So a lot more interesting in this pilot when it comes to what Screw-On-Head can do and, and his abilities and so forth. And then um, it seems that, though, uh, similar to the comic, Head still prefers his humanoid-looking body, which he calls Lucky 13. And this is the body that seems to be able to shoot stakes from its wrists at vampires. <laughs> He tries to kill Constance like that a couple of times in the animated uh, pilot. And um, the comic book also has a different ending. Emperor Zombie also bites the dust. Um, just as in the comic book, he, he, he dies at the end of the animated pilot. But it turns out that Patience, the vampire, has survived. And she becomes Screw-On-Head's new nemesis after she kidnaps Mr. Dog. And that's basically how the pilot ends. So a great little animated pilot, just about 20 minutes long. I'm sure you'll be able to find it somewhere, um, either to be downloaded legally, hopefully, or you, you might be able to pick it up in video stores or, or online somewhere, or you might be able to buy it over Amazon, I'm not sure. I bought mine a while ago. Um, I'm not sure if it's still available. This was what way back when, in 2008, when I got mine. So um, I would recommend that all of you pick that up. Pick up the comic book and the animated pilot. Both are, are significantly different from each other, but also shares a lot of the similarities that um, I'm sure you'd come to love if you watched it and read it like I did. All right, so let's get to the second part of the comic book, which is entitled Other Curious Objects. Here we've got the first tale, Abu Gong and the Beanstalk. And the synopsis goes as follows. This is a tale of Gung as a young boy. While begging for food in the land of Mu, young Gung inadvertently ends up assisting three old women who were cheated of their riches by the devil. One of the three sisters, having ingested magic beans given to her by the devil, is now but a corpse with a beanstalk sprouting from her open belly. Gung ascends the beanstalk, confronts the devil at the top where he sits lounging under an umbrella tricks him into peering over the edge and subsequently boots him off the beanstalk. The devil plummets to his doom, shattering like pewter as he hits the ground, disgorging the jewels and riches that he had stolen from the sisters. Gung is kidnapped by a giant flying bat at the end, though, but that is a tale for another day. A fascinating small little tale. Um, Mignola's art really shines again, but... This story is just too short. It didn't flesh out the character of Gung very much. I uh, just gave you a, a quick laugh, really, when it came to him booting the devil off the beanstalk. Uh, so I would have to give this 2.5 out of 5 apocalyptic turnips. Still, um, interesting little fairy tale that Mignola probably generated on his own, although it might be based in uh, myth. Uh, because Mignola is an aficionado of fables and uh, myths and legends and folklore especially. Um, so it, it might be that he was inspired. Um, I think this story originally appeared in 1998 in the Dark Horse anthology Scatterbrain. Um, but I think Mignola said he was never happy with how he drew it, so he redrew a lot of sections of it for this collection. But um, interesting little tale. And then the second one is The Magician and the Snake. This is a very, very short story chronicling the love between a magician and his pet snake. The magician, in order to prove his preeminence before the king, casts a spell that makes three curious objects appear and then disappear. He knew, however, that should the objects ever reappear, it would mean his death. So he and his talking pet snake resolve to live for the moment and enjoy their lives together. We see them flying a kite at one point in time. 
At the end of the story, the objects reappear but the magician dies happy, knowing that he has lived his life to the fullest. He is survived by his snake. Alright, this story is really strange, really weird. Not much of a story, per se. You can't really call it a tale. Just a couple of series of events. So I would have to give this 2.2, let's say 2 out of 5 turnips. I'm not going to go for another 2.5. 2 out of 5 turnips for this The Magician and the Snake. And then we have a fascinating little story called The Witch and Her Soul. And the story goes as follows. A witch has died, leaving her two living wooden puppets in fear for their lives. How would they ever survive without her, they wonder. Their fears are exacerbated by the arrival of the devil, who declares that all of the witch's possessions belong to him, as he had made a bargain with her in her youth, where the devil had granted her magical powers so that she could, quote, do some crazy, crazy stuff with them in exchange for her soul. The puppets fear going to hell where they would surely burn, being made of wood and all, but the devil comes up with an alternative. He offers to change them into demonic puppets in exchange for their promise to do one truly evil and despicable thing. They agree and fly away on their new demonic things, uh, wings, relieved at having escaped a trip to hell. The devil ends the tale by stating that he doesn't expect much from those guys, but he created some evil puppets, and that's a good day's work for him. All right, now what I love about this story is the way Mignola draws these little puppets. They're like little children. They're in obvious distress at having just lost their mother figure, uh, this old witch that had died. And <laughs> there's one point in time where when they find out they're going to hell, they grab their hands and say, uh, they grab their faces in their hands and they yell, I can't stand it. I'm freaking out. I can't stand it. <laughs> Mignola draws that brilliantly. So for this story, I probably just because of the cuteness factor and because of the weird, you know, ending where the devil sort of compliments himself uh, at doing a good day's work, I'll have to give it uh, another 2.5 out of 5 apocalyptic turnips. And by the way, Dave Stewart, who did the colors on all of these stories, he really shines in this tale. The colors are popping off the page. He's an amazing colorist. I've complimented him many times before, but really he did it fantastic job here so well done Dave and then we get to one of my favorite stories of the bunch which is the fourth tale called prisoner of Mars and this is a story about dr. snap from the amazing screw on head tale Emperor zombies colleague and um, this is about his first death now as you might not well I might not have mentioned but in the Amazing screw on hit comic when Professor Snap makes contact with the turnip, which turns out to uh, be the parallel universe that contains this beast of the apocalypse. He either is destroyed by the release of the beast, disintegrated, or the beast literally takes over his body and transmogrifies Snap's body into the beast of the apocalypse. The beast's spirit sort of goes into him through this turnip and then transforms him. Now both uh, scenarios are likely. He might have been destroyed with, by the coming of the beast, by releasing the beast, or he might have actually become the beast and then uh, later was destroyed by Screw-On-Head's explosive arm. Um, whatever. Uh, Professor, or Dr. Snap, I should say, is dead. But this is a tale of the past where he died the first time. Very interesting story. Okay, here's the synopsis. Dr. Snap narrates a tale to his contemporaries in some gentleman's club or other and starts off with telling them a bit about his good friend Professor Cyclops, who had found a strange man-sized stone egg in the English countryside, which looked as if, it, as if it had been a meteorite. Within this egg he had discovered a cephalopod-looking creature, whom he had commenced to study. Something strange had happened during the experiments, though, and he had called Dr. Snap for assistance. When Dr. Snap arrived at Cyclops' residence, he was attacked by a zombie, Dr. Cyclops. Snap seemed to have snapped himself and in a fit of murderous frenzy, proceeded to cut off his former friend's head, seemingly in self-defense. 
but he was subsequently hanged for that. It was deemed a murder. In his own words, they did him up like a pirate. So after his death by hanging, his astral form traveled to Mars, to the origin of the strange stone meteorite and its cephalopod visitor. And there, Professor Snap encountered Professor Cyclops, who was at this point in time inhabiting one of the giant bodies of the floating Martians, who basically looked like large levitating albino cuttlefish. Snap's astral self was captured and encased in a floating robot tripod, and he and Cyclops commenced exploring Mars and Martian culture together. Cyclops had been tutoring the natives on Earth culture and human anatomy, but Snap and Cyclops soon discovered, much to their detriment, that the Martians were not simply curious. No, no, no. In fact, they were planning a full-scale invasion of Earth. Cyclops sacrificed himself by causing a series of explosions that set off a chain reaction that decimated the Martian cities one by one, leaving Dr. Snap as the only survivor. Floating around the devastated surface of Mars in his robotic body, Snap soon discovered the planet's original inhabitants, giant godlike protea plants, who thanked him for destroying the evil Martians by giving him a new human body and sending him back to Earth. Having been legally hanged already, he could now no longer be prosecuted for Cyclops' death on Earth, and it seemed that they had saved the planet to boot. The club members congratulated him and proposed a toast in Snap's name, name saying that he's the best of them. So Mignola here draws the Martians absolutely amazingly. Uh, they've got these giant iridescent bodies and slimy suckers all over their tentacles and these um, cancerous growths uh, that you know uh, show up all over their mottled skin. Uh, it, yikes, it's really horrific. Um, I also love the design of the little flying robot body. Uh, which kind of looks like a flying saucer with telescoping little tentacle legs. But it's got this light bulb on top, which contains the astral essence of Dr. Snap. And it glows with this bright light, illuminating the Martian landscape wherever it goes. I love this story, really. I would put this on par with the very first uh, screw-on-head tale, so I would also give this four out of five apocalyptic turnips. Now, the final story is a little bit of a strange egg. Uh, it, it's not a story at all. Therefore, I'm not even going to give it a rating. Entitled In the Chapel of Curious Objects, it's basically just Mignola taking the reader or the viewer. The, the, it's, there's no text in the story whatsoever. It's just Mignola drawing a series of portraits and then taking the reader through this chapel where there are these statues of angels and saints. And there's also, strangely enough, a statue of the magician and his snake from the earlier tale. And then the reader or the viewer's hand, or we're seeing this from the perspective of a first-person view, reaches out towards the magician's statue, grasps the head of the snake and pulls it and this opens a secret compartment inside the statue's chest. And then the three objects, the curious objects that the magician manifested, tumble out. And then this story, if you can call it that, ends with an ossified heart hanging in the darkness with the words on it written, The End. And that concludes the collection. And then the final pa page before the story notes is a portrait of a man sitting with a caduceus, one of those scepters wielded by ancient Roman emperors or presumably by um, grand masters of some occult order um, in the backdrop of some ancient temple, presumably the Temple of Gang. This occult explorer sitting there posing for a portrait by Mignola. And then you've got the awesome sketchbook segment that I mentioned, which is great. Mignola has all these little notes about how his sketches and ideas evolved. It's definitely worth reading and looking. There's about five pages of extra sketches. And then 
the book finishes with a portrait of the amazing screw on head himself. His robotic head is has come unscrewed from this body sitting dressed in a tuxedo with a gramophone on his side, portrait of Abraham Lincoln in the back, and a little picture of an apocalyptic turnip at the bottom. And uh, a great design uh, by Mignola, the amazing screw on head being this robotic-like humanoid character with this detachable head, which was a thing in the 19th century, you know, steampunk having evolved from from 19th century ideas and, and art and sketches. From prominent thinkers at the time, you had this um, concept of a clockwork man, which was the early precursor to what we now call robots. And that is what Screw-On-Head is. He's this artificial man, this clockwork man, um, who somehow gained intelligence, his own autonomous thinking, and he's a hero of the times. Um, the right man from the, for the job, certainly, of combating evil, the evil that faces America and the New World. So that's it for our discussion on the amazing Screw-On-Head. Don't go away now, listeners, because the next segment we've got coming up is titled The History of Horror. Welcome to Herman's History of Horror. Today... We'll be looking at the best of the rest, the competitors of Warren Magazines and Eerie Publications. Listen closely, there might be a quiz later. And for those who fail, well, need I say more? <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. All right, some of the titles we'll be discussing this week on the History of Horror were direct competitors to the Warren magazines, the black and white, eerie and creepy magazines they put out at the time, Vampirella and so forth. Now, all of them were certainly inspired by the success of Jim Warren and his publication, but um, some were there, of course, to compete for market space, although others were done simply to placate editors or writers and artists who had these half-baked and half-hearted ideas that they wanted to put some horror on the stands as well. But some of these titles were really promising, and that's why it's a real loss for us horror fans that most of them didn't really make it. But the best of these titles that competed with uh, Warren and Erie Publications at the time were Taboo, the Web of Horror, and Warrior. Now, they were all three black and white magazines. They provided some great stories um, and some original content. Now, if you think about it, um, most of the Warren magazines at this, this time featured some creative content, but a lot of reprints because Jim Warren had run out of money. He wasn't able to pay writers and artists um, for... Um, monthly content so he reprinted a lot of old stories but web of horror specifically which is the title we're going to be looking at today um it was this first serious rival to warren's black and white line in the 60s and it had many young professional artists on it um who came to prov prominence in the 1970s and um you know basically uh the magazine's mascot was a cute spider <laughs> named Webster. You know, so rather than a horror host, they had this mascot named Webster. And um, as I mentioned, at least a third of Warren's creepy and eerie uh, content consisted of reprints, but Web of Horror had all these new stories from a young group of artists, and they were collectively known as the New Turks. Um, and they would shortly go to work for Marvel and DC um, as well. But at the time, they were killing it on Weapon of Horror. And um, they had no internal ads in the Web of Horror magazines. That's something that Jim Warren must have hated because he had to run ads all the time to make ends meet. And um, 
uh, Jim Warren was so threatened by the success of Web of Horror that he actually sent a letter to his freelancers um, called Them or Us, where he stated that you could either work for Warren or you could work for other black and white horror comic publishers. You could never work for both. That's how threatened he felt at the time um, at the success of Web of Horror. Um, now, of the youngsters that I mentioned, the young Turks who came up in Web of Horror, the most famous would probably be Bernie Wrightson. He had made his professional debut um, in you know Web of Horror. And uh, there was also another guy called Ralph Reese. He had been working under Wally Wood. Um, and he was credited for a solo story in Web of Horror. And um, you also had Sid Shores, who you illustrated one of the old pros who worked for Web of Horror, though. He wasn't a young Turk. He worked on Captain America back in the 40s. And, um, you know, then you had writers like Terry Bisson, who uh, was a major science fiction writer. He had won a string of awards for his science fiction tales. Um, so the best story in Web of Horror would probably be The Island of the Walking Dead. Um, and it's really a great tale. It's hard to find, though. You'll have to either pay a lot of money for it on eBay or wait for them to reprint it. Um, I myself have not read um, this particular story. I'm, I'm just, you know, through interviews and through um, books like Horror Comics in Black and White, A History and Catalog, I'm just researching this tale. So it's hard to find uh, since, you know, most of them have not been reprinted or collected, but hopefully we'll get a collection uh, one day. And, um, you know, they had these uh, noteworthy um, original tales which made um, Warren magazines and Erie magazines blanch when they, you know, saw that this content was, that was being generated by a host of new, young and up-and-coming artists. So Web of Horror, um, definite competitor at the time to the dominance of uh, eerie and creepy magazines. Um, there was even um, a, a famous Marvel artist, well he became famous a couple of years later when he did Doctor Strange called Frank Bruner, who um, did some stories for Web of Horror and he actually withheld one of his final stories, The Sword of Dragonus, because um, he saw the collapse of Web of Horror coming because it, it didn't last, unfortunately, um, even though it was a competitor to the Warren and magazines, the sales were not that great. So eventually Web of Horror was shut down. Um, and Frank Brunner almost published one of his stories in it, which meant he would have had to um, give up his copyright to it, his um, creator-owned rights to it. But he didn't. He luckily kept it and then uh, he published it independently, this Dragona story in Star, Star Reach, where he then in fact kept his uh, creator-owned credit to this story. So a short bit of history on the short-lived but a valiant competitor of the Black and White Warren magazines, The Web of Horror. Right, that's it for our History of Horror segment. We'll be back of a, with a bit of a Creator Spotlight segment. So don't go away now. Look at that. What is it? This week, our Creator Spotlight will focus on none other than the man himself, the artist extraordinaire, Mike Mignola, creator of Hellboy, Ape Sapien, the BPRD, and a host of other amazing comic book concepts. So just a bit of background on Mignola. He was born in Berkeley, California on September 16th, 1960, and he grew up in nearby Oakland. He was fascinated by monsters and ghosts at a very early age and um, he ended up reading Dracula at the age of 13 which introduced him to Victorian literature 
and folklore especially, which is what his work is known for, his use of folklore in Hellboy specifically. And he has never recovered from that addiction to Victorian literature and the folklore and stories of old. So in 1982, he was hoping to find a gig where he could draw monsters for a living, so he moved to New York City and began working for Marvel Comics as an inker. Uh, but he wasn't a very good inker. Uh, later on, he became the artist on books like Rocket Raccoon, Alpha Flight, and The Hulk, and he started to improve his art style. By the late 80s, his signature style had almost been fully formed, um, and this is, of course, characterized by thin shapes, uh, clunky shapes, thin lines, lots of black shadows, and so forth. And then he moved on to co uh, projects like Cosmic Odyssey for DC, in 1988 and Gotham by Gaslight in 1989. Um, he also did Fafford and the Grey Mouser in 1990. That didn't do so well for Marvel. But in 1992, he drew the comic book adaptation for the film Bram Stoker's Dracula, and that was for Topps Comics. And they've recently reprinted that this year in black and white. And then in 1993, Mike moved to Dark Horse Comics, and he offered up his seminal creation, Hellboy, to them. Uh, now, Hellboy, for those who don't know, uh, for those who have been living in a bubble, uh, who doesn't know who Hellboy is, he's a demon occult uh, adventurer or investigator who works for the BPRD. Uh, he also could possibly be the Beast of the Apocalypse. And, um, of course, the first storyline, Seed of Destruction, from 1994, was co-written with John Byrne. But after that, Mignola wrote and drew the series himself for quite a while before he let other artists take the reins. But he still remained the main writer. And um, to date there have been 13 Hellboy graphic novel collections, actually 14 if you count Hellboy and Hell being split into two graphic novel collections. And then you've got a host of library editions and um, you've got the new Hellboy uh, omnibus series coming out collecting the old stuff. And then of course there's lots of spin-off titles that was generated by the success of Hellboy. We're talking about BPRD, BPRD, um, Characters like Lobster or Abe Sapien, um, and then you've got a character Lobster, Lobster Johnson. You've got the Witchfinder series, and uh, of course you have uh, the current BPRD Hell on Earth series, which is doing phenomenally well. Um, Alboy has also generated three anthologies of prose stories, several novels, uh, two animated films, and of course the two live-action films starring Ron Perlman, directed by Guillermo del Toro. And Hellboy the comic has earned numerous industry awards. And it's been translated and published in many countries. So quite a success for Mike. Um, what a creation Hellboy is. And uh, Mike has been awarded uh, industry awards for other comic books as well. Not just for Hellboy. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, The Amazing Screw-On Head won the Eisner for Best Humor publication. He's written two novels with uh, best-selling author Christopher Golden. Baltimore or the Steadfast in Soldier, that's one of the novels, and Joe Golem and the Drowning City. And of course, Mike worked as a consultant uh, for Francis Ford Coppola on the film Bram Stoker's Dracula. He did not only do the, um, the artistic uh, representation of that, the adaptation of uh, Stoker's Dracula, he also worked as a production designer. And uh, he also did some production design on Disney's Atlantis The Lost Empire, and he was a visual consultant for Guillermo del Toro on Blade II, Hellboy, and Hellboy II, The Golden Army. And Mike's still going strong. He's still coming up with lots of uh, new concepts. He doesn't draw as much as he used to. He's more into writing these days. But um, two of my recommendations in our recommendation segment will be some of Mignola's newer works. And I hope you'll enjoy them, constant listeners. When we come back, we'll head into our final segment with some, like I say, recommendations. Uh, but until then, uh, don't go away now. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. 
Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. The Swamp. More than merely a place. It is a churning, seething, bubbling bed of life of which you are a part. Once you were a man, a chemist named Ted Salas, until one little experiment went somewhat awry. And you changed. The serum that was to have made you a super soldier combined with the strange forces in the swamp to make you over into this, a shambling, mindless mockery of your former humanity. The macabre man-thing. Man-Thing was created in the early 1970s to capitalize on the growing monster craze, but under writer Steve Gerber it became something quite different. Experimental, surreal, and very, very weird. It was something I loved as a kid, but does it still hold up today, four decades after its initial publication? So join me, Paul Matthew Carr, as I attempt to make sense of this cult classic and analyze each issue, putting it in the context of the time it was written and comparing it to the standards of today. And maybe you, too, can come to love the world's second most famous swamp-based comic book character as much as I do. The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast, a twice-monthly dive into the bizarre. All right, listeners, time for our final segment, our recommendations. Now, I've read a lot of horror over the last couple of months, but... I've decided to only recommend two books to you because they tie in nicely to what we've been talking about this episode and, of course, uh, links to the themes that we've been discussing as well. So both of these books are by Mike Mignola, and I'm sure if you like his Hellboy stuff and if you liked, in fact, The Amazing Screw-On-Head, you'll find these two recommendations highly enjoyable. Okay, the first one is called Jenny Finn by Mike Mignola and Troy Nixie with colors by Dave Stewart. It's a a hardcover collecting the four-issue series published in May 2018 by Dark Horse Comics. It's a beautiful little book. I would hardly recommend it to anybody who loves horror and uh, period pieces like tales set in Victorian England. Okay, so this is a tale where the harbinger of the apocalypse is none other than a young, possibly 12-year-old girl called Jenny Finn. Uh, now, this story contains Lovecraftian sea monsters, horrific ocean-borne diseases that leave the denizens of London looking like tourists from inn's mouth. And Jenny Finn is a tale of a country bumpkin called Joe and his crusade to get Jenny off the streets while at the same time being dogged by the steampunk government, led by the diabolical and construct-enhanced Prime Minister and his pseudoscientific cronies, who would like nothing better than to welcome the end of the world with open arms, it seems. That is, if it serves Her Majesty's government. So that is it. Jenny Finn, give it a read, pick it up, either digitally, but I would recommend the uh, physical edition, the hardcover copy, is beautiful, as all Dark Horse's hardcovers are. Jenny Finn, you can't go wrong with that. And the second one that I want to recommend, again by Mike Mignola, is a trade paperback that had been released, has been released in July 2018, uh, written by Mignola, of course, with uh, co-written with Chris Robertson, and then art by Christopher Mitten, colors again by the um, ineluct ineluctable Dave Stewart. Uh, this is Rasputin, the voice of the dragon, uh, trade paperback collecting the six-issue miniseries published uh, in 2017 and early 2018 by Dark Horse. And this tells the story of young Trevor Brutenholm and how he first came to learn of the Nazis' project Ragnarok and the mad Russian responsible for conceiving it. Working as a young codebreaker in World War II, Trevor intercepts a coded message that sets him on the trail of occult conspirators intent upon raising a member of the Heliopic Brotherhood of Ra. The threat of zombies, ghosts, and demonic wards is alleviated with the help of a new ally and deadly occult operative A.N. Sandu, who manages to find the breadcrumbs that leads them into the ossuaries of the Paris catacombs to a confrontation against the arch architects of the apocalypse, Karl Ruprecht Cronin, 
Ilsa Hauptstein, and the Mad Monk himself. Great story. I finished reading it earlier this week, and I loved it to bits. Both of these tales were sticking in my mind long after I had read them, so I would definitely beg you to pick them up, and I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of another Long Box of Darkness episode. If you want to send feedback or contact me, please do so. You can uh, send direct messages or audio files to darklongbox at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at darklongbox or check out my Instagram account, which is also at darklongbox. Or you can um, go to the blog, which is at www.longboxofdarkness.com. I'll have some images from this episode up there, hopefully by the end of the day. And uh, that's it for the show. But take care of yourself. Be well. Stay healthy so that you will inevitably return for yet another peek inside the long box of darkness. Take care, dear listeners, and pleasant screams until we meet again.